And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Uh, coming up in the show today, in the first hour, I'm finally, we've had so many things. I'm actually doing two October events here uh, from an October 21st reading at the bookshop in Tamworth. Uh, you'll hear readings by Jeffrey Cook and Harold Huffle. And I should mention uh, that this reading was supported by funding from the Canada Council for the Arts and the League of Canadian Poets through their uh, Canada Poetry Tours program. And in the second hour from uh, the October 2nd open mic reading in the end, the Journey Continues monthly series, uh, you'll hear readings by Ron Chase, Jerry Jarit, Gwen Whitford, Jenny Marshall, Robert Millard, Gary Raspberry, Sarah Emtish, Meg Freer, Jolene Simcoe, and Nadia Pacey. Uh, this first, though, just the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong uh, language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. I believe I'll have a bit of time at the end of the second hour, maybe a bit at the end of this one. We'll see how it goes to share a few upcoming events and calls for submissions. Up first, uh, I, from an October 21st reading at the bookshop in Tamworth with readings by Jeffrey Cook and Harold Huffle and uh, hosted... Uh, and hosted and emceed, I guess, by the bookshop owner, uh, Robert Wright. Uh, you'll hear the introduction up first now to Jeffrey Cook and then Cook's reading. Here you go. Enjoy. Thanks uh, very much for attending today. Um, uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Bruce Kaufman's here today uh, from CFRC, this uh, program Finding a Voice. So he's doing a recording today. So thank you, Bruce. Wonderful. Um, two readers today, Jeffrey Cook and Harold Hofel. Um, Jeff is going to start. Uh, Jeff is the author of the poetry collection Postscript, published by Vehicle Press. Um, the poems in that book garnered favorable press from David Adams Richards, George Eliot Clark, and Ken Babstock, and it was shortlisted for the Alfred G. Bailey and Gerald Lampert Memorial Prizes Awards. Uh, Jeffrey currently teaches in the English department at John Abbott College in Montreal, uh, and his poems and translations have been widely published and anthologized. His most recent collection of poems is entitled Afterwards. Uh, again, it's published by Viacule. They do very nice production on their, on their series. Um, and it's comprised of reimaginings of German poems by Goethe, Heine, Rilke, and Brecht. Please welcome Jeffrey. Right, okay, I'll turn this this way, because we over there. Uh, pardon, some of this is going to be fairly, um, sound like a lecture, but I'll try to uh, change that tone shortly. A uh, few minutes through. 
So I come from the land of Kak to Ford Nation, and I do not bear good news, except if poetry is an act of articulate truth against the false speaking of politics, an act of resistance to repressive policy, an act of solidarity with the human heart. And if notwithstanding clauses, I'd encourage you to not stand with those assaults on freedom and dignity. Afterwards ends with a nachwort, which is an afterword, which ends with a PS, which is a postscript, which is the name of my first book. What I say at the end is, this book appears at a time of rising intolerance, walls, selfishness, and fear of others. The heart of translation is dialogue, and dialogue is the heart of the human. It is in creative dialogue that we become more fully human. We know ourselves better by knowing others. We are more fully ourselves by listening to others, by learning who we are to others, from others. Goethe's poem, Ginkgo Biloba, is not only a great metaphor for the poetry I've tried to make here, but for my understanding of a fuller humanity. Do you not feel that in my songs I am one and the other too? We need to be more one and the other. We need to be one another. Afterwards begins with a dedicatory, with uh, Goethe's dedicatory poem, from Faust, which he worked on from age 20 to 80-something. Uh, and it was nice to see that Robert could actually find a copy of my first book published 15 years ago. Again your vague shapes close in. You who once revealed yourself to foggy vision. Am I right to try to hold you close this time? Does my heart still long for illusion? You crowd forward. Fine, then. You determine how you'll loom before me out of mist and fog. My heart's as shaken now as when I was young by your passages enchanting song. You bring with you images of happier days, awakening so many of my closest shades, like some old half-forgotten myth appear first love and friendship. The pain revives, echoing the lament of life's errant passage in a labyrinth and names the good ones who, cheated by fate of good times, have already faded. They will not hear the songs that follow, those souls before whom I once rehearsed, those early echoes died out long ago, the crowd of friends has all dispersed. Now my sorrow sounded by so many I don't know, and by their mere applause my heart is startled. But those once gladdened by my songs, if living still, wander scattered round the world. And I'm seized by a long, unwanted longing for that solemn, silent spirit realm. My lisping lead, as from an aeolian harp, soars on equivocal tones. A shudder wrenches me, tear after tear runs down. My hard heart grows tender, gentle, calmed. All I have I see is far away, and what's already gone's become my sole reality. As Robert mentioned, this book includes translations from Goethe, Heine, Brecht, and Rilke, 
and I'll try to read uh, from each of those poets and indicate what some of the tricks I pulled in, in translating. Uh, three by Rilke, who is the reason I tried to learn German way back in the 80s. Some of the poems that ended up here I started translating in 90 when I was in Czechoslovakia near Prague where Rilke grew up and then fled. Um, in the time when the walls were all going down as opposed to now when all the walls are going up. This poem, uh, yeah, all the poems I've done from Milka are from the new poem, so that's published 1907-1908. That's 110 years ago. Um, and they, <laughs> Milka must be the most unpolitical poet. Hmm. Um, but you can't read some of these now without going, oh my god. So there's this poem, The Square, which I actually started to translate in 2002, that is to say, a little while after 9-11. The Square. Strung out by the whimsy of what's past, splayed by rage and riot, by the rave accompanying the condemned, by newsstands, by the siren blasts, by the governor's cavalcade, and by the mayor, the city's pride, background on all sides. The square endlessly invites the distant windows to enter its expanse, and the void's escorts and attendants radiate along the lines of trade and gradually take up shop. Hoping for a glance, the condos crowd up to their walls of glass, uneasily ignoring the extravagance of the towers looming at their backs. That image of the towers looming at the backs is Rilke. Condos not so much, walls of glass not so much. There's a bit of a tweak. That's at the near the beginning of the book. Near the end is another Rilke poem that I just did last year, which is called Migrant Ship, and which is set in Naples. And, uh, of course, we have all sorts of different images of the migrant ships now. Imagine you're in flight, glowing hot. Behind you, only smugglers and cops, and you, a migrant, abruptly pull up to turn against hundreds. Just like that, all across the blue sea, the glow of fruits wrecks like rack as the slow orange boat carries them over to the great gray ship into which, with the heave and hoe, other boats hoist fish and bread, while it, scornful, hauls coal into her hold, gaping like death. I'm kind of reading front and back right toward the middle. Um, Foreign Family is the third poem by Rilke I'll read. Um, my wife is an Afghan refugee from uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And she has taught me how to rethink my world. One in 118 people on Earth are either refugees or internally displaced. So if you don't learn to see the world from the perspective of refugees, you are denying a future that is as certain as death. Foreign Family. This is a weird poem by Rilke. And the other thing that uh, I think is suggested in, in this volume, if you can reference some of the German, uh, is that um, I kind of take a jab at some of these poets for their perspectives. Just as dust 
which starts somehow and is nowhere, from some obscure reason on an empty morning in the corner of blank stairs, quickly clots to gray. So they took shape from who knows what, in the second before your footsteps, and were something dubious amidst the damp trash of the alley, and that longed for you, or not. For a voice, as from last year, did sing to you, yet was still like weeping, and a hand which seemed to be reaching out was extended, and yet did not take yours. Who's next? What's up with these four? Bertolt Brecht, who uh, is perhaps uh, well, a relief, his materialist perspective is a relief after Rilke's um, dubious idealism. So here he is early on. On poor B.B. I, Bertolt Brecht, from the black forests, was carried in my mother's womb to the cities, and the cold of those forests will stay with me till the day I die. I'm at home in asphalt cities that first provided those final sacraments, tobacco, brandy, and newspapers. Lazy to the end, I was mistrustful and content. I'm friendly to people. I wear a stiff cap as is customary here. I say, they are distinctly stinky animals. And I say, so what? I am as well. Sometimes in the morning, in my empty rocking chair, I sit a couple women, gaze on them indifferently, and say, in me you have a man on whom you can't depend. In the evening, I gather round me guys who call each other heron, and with their feet up on my table, they surmise, it'll get better for us, and I don't ask when. In the early morning fog, spruce trees piss, and their vermin birds begin to screech. In town at that hour, I drain my glass, chuck away my butt, and go to bed anxious. A frivolous species, we sat in homes we thought as safe as the Titanic, like those tall towers we made in Manhattan, and flimsy cables girding the Atlantic. What's left of cities will be the wind that blew through them. A household fills the partier with joy. He empties it. We're the harbingers and naught will be worth counting after new. In the earthquake to come, I hope I won't let bitterness extinguish my fine cigarette. I, Bertolt Brecht, inside my mother, was forced into asphalt cities from the black forests. And taking one step closer to the darkness here, um, this is Brecht's poem for his good friend, Walter Benjamin, who uh, committed suicide. He was so nervous in trying to make the final run from Hitler. Uh, I'm reading this as an act of protest against the murder of the Saudi journalist, whose name I will slaughter, Khashoggi noting the hypocrisy of Turkey calling out Saudi Arabia for crimes against freedom of the press. On the suicide of the refugee WB. And I'm not implying there was any suicide over there. I hear you raised your hand against yourself, getting ahead of the butcher. 
Exiled eight years, observing the enemy's ascent, forced at the last against an impassable border, you passed, it said, a passable one. Empires fall, a warlord's passed off as a politician. One cannot see for all the arms the peoples anymore. The future's dark, the forces of good enfeebled. You saw all of this when you destroyed that body fit for torture. So while this book, uh, as Lear said of his own hand, reeks of mortality, there are some lighter moments. At least some people might consider them lighter. Um, some of these poems are from Goethe's Venetian epigrams, which um, sometimes got published over 200 years. This one is from the Roman Elegies. Here I tend my garden plot. Here I tend love's flowers selected by the muses and tactfully laid out in beds. Fruit-bearing boughs, the golden fruit of life I happily planted once and gladly nurture now. Stand tall here by their side, Priapus. I have nothing to fear from thieves. Let them pick freely. Let all grazers enjoy. Just watch out for hypocrites, those spineless, shame-faced miscreants. If one of those appalled by the fruits of raw nature comes to ogle our charming domain, take them from behind with that flushed shaft rising from your loins. Goethe. Ouch. <laughs> Just look, dear, at this thick spray of bush. You should see the fruit beneath its verdant sheath of pricks. They've hung long and still, balled up, unknown to themselves, patiently swaying as their branch undulates. But inside, the dark seed always swells and ripens, longing to breathe the air and feel the sun. The nut explodes and spills ecstatically, so my songs unload across your lap and knees. Brecht. Uh, with at least one political reference. Longing for a long, wide skirt. And pull out that wide and simple skirt, the one I cunningly convinced to lengthen by lifting it up your legs full length, past thighs and round your ass. That earns a perk. And when you squat up on our sofa, be unfolded in its folds, so through the tobacco smoke of heated debates, your flesh reveals the night will be good and late. My groaning for this skirt's not just vulgar lust. You move in it with magnificence, as Medea did, when through Colchis's alleys she bore her wicker basket to the sea. What if I know no better arguments? Grab that skirt. What's Lowe's enough for us? But, you know, I'm starting to turn gray, too. Lotus. Heine. Really, we two make a curious couple. The beloved's legs are thick. The lover's just a cripple. She's an ailing pussycat, and he's sick as a dog. I would say, if I were asked, neither's so good in the noggin. 
The beloved imagines she's a lotus in bloom, while the pale companion presumes he's the moon. The lotus flower unfurls her sweet bud by moonlight, yet instead of fructifying life, she comes to know only a verse. Another poem by Heine, uh, who's the one I like most of this crew. Actually, he would be a tolerable companion. Three, four more poems. Here, uh, Heine refers to uh, wolves howling in some mountains in Europe. And uh, besides recontextualizing some of the poems so we can't read them without hearing recent events, um, sometimes I just outright changed imagery to make it quite literally mine. So I live in the Laurentians. Lamb. Appointed dear lamb as shepherd to protect you in this world. I've fed you with my bread and fetched your water from an aquifer. When snowstorms coldly blustered, I warmed you on my breast. Here I held you, close and hard. When downpours poured down and dogs and snowplows outhowled each other along the dark Laurentian shield. You weren't afraid and never shook. Even when lightning split the tallest pine, you slept calm and quiet in my lap. My arm is getting weak. Pale death is skulking round. Our mountain pastoral is at an end. Lord, I place the staff in your hand again. Protect my poor lamb when I'm laid to rest. Don't let her be pricked by thorns, so keep her fleece from prickly hedge and dirty ditch. Let the best grass grow at her feet wherever she is, and let her sleep as she once slept calmly in my lap. This is a prose poem by Brecht that I've made almost a sonnet, 12 lines, exploiting the uh, rhymes that were found there in English. The big fisherman's come round again. He sits in his rotten bark and fishes from the first lamps flaring up at dawn until the last one's quenched when the sun's gone down. The villagers sit and watch him from the graveled scarp, grinning. He fishes herring, but hauls up only stones. Everyone laughs. Men slapping their thighs, women holding their bellies, and kids skipping high into the sky with delight. When the big fisherman raises high his tattered net and finds stones in it, he hides nothing, but stretches strong brown arms way out, grabs a stone, and holding it high, displays it to the unfortunate. Brecht did get out of Europe, ended up uh, <laughs> in the United States, um, and wrote this poem on the West Coast, the end of the war. Fishing gear. Hanging on the whitewashed wall of my shack is a bamboo rod tangled in hemp and rope with an iron hook. The tackle's made to snatch fish nets out of the seas. The gear was from a second-hand store in town. My son bought it for my birthday. It's well-worn. Rusted by salt, the irons staining the rope. Such workings scar the rod with dignity. I like to think the tackle was left behind by some of those Japanese fishermen who've been forced from the west coast and interned as suspect foreigners. 
the gears to remind me to mind the many unsolved but not insoluble questions of humanity. And closing with Heine. Uh, he was crippled, paralyzed, mostly blind at the end of his life, for a number of years at the end of his life, nonetheless wrote reams of poem, poems in his sleep or dreams and had them dictated in the morning. And in a couple of his final poems, he references uh, Achilles in the underworld. Uh, Odysseus goes down and meets him and says, oh, you're the great Achilles type of thing. And Achilles says, uh, I regret my choice of fame. I'd rather have long life. Epilogue. Our grave is warmed by fame. Fool's words, dum-dum. Better warmth comes from the thickened lips of doting dairymaids who kiss us and distinctly smell of shit. Better warmth likewise heats up the guts of guys who drink grog or punch or swill until they've had their fill and the lowest kind of dives among the thieves and rogues who've just escaped the noose but live to blow their noses again and are more enviable than Thetis's great child. The Peleid spoke straight. To live like a refugee, even in a failing state, is better than to be king of shades by Syrian waters, that hero sung by Homer. Thank you. And you just heard, uh, again, as introduced by Robert Wright, uh, the um, bookshop owner, uh, from an October 21st reading held at the bookshop in Tamworth, a reading by uh, Jeffrey Cook. And coming up next, the second reader in that, again introduced uh, by Robert Wright, is uh, Harold Hoffel. And uh, that will... Uh, yeah, let's just move straight into his uh, inter Robert's introduction and Harold's reading. I've got an, you know what? I'll just do it here now. I'll just mention again that uh, this reading was uh, supported by funding from the Canada Council for the Arts and the League of Canadian Poets through the Canada Poetry Tours program. So again, coming up here is Harold Hoffel. Uh, Harold Hoffel is the author of The Mountain Clinic, a linked collection of short stories published by Oberon Press in 2008. His poem, A Loving Follow-Through, won the Banff Center Bliss Carmen Poetry Award in 2014. Like uh, Jeff, Harold also teaches English and creative writing at John Abbott College and lives in Montreal. Um, his most recent book, is the poetry collection The Night Chorus. Again, very handsome production. This one, this time from McGill, McGill Queen's University Press. The publisher describes Harold's book as a collection of poems that give voice and agency to marginal figures in rural places and cityscapes. Please welcome Harold Hopel. On behalf of uh, on behalf of Jeff and I, I'd like to thank uh, Laurie, Robert, and uh, in the back Poppy for uh, taking care of us today. 
and I'll dedicate my reading to my first reader of all these poems, my wife Karen sitting behind Jeff's wife, perhaps symbolically, <laughs> uh, on the steps. And uh, I'll also dedicate my reading to Jeff, who is the other reader. Um, I would write a poem, give it to Karen, and she'd say something like, it's pretty good till I find the word I. Could you get that I out of there? Just like that letter. And Jeff would sometimes say about a poem, he'd scribble, good. Or sometimes, my preferred comment, not sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, good for my modesty. Uh, the first poem is a loving follow-through. At least it's not dripping off the kitchen table, the wet cereal of my brain. But the front room's got my Kyla and Jimbo, I hope not messy like me. And he's already gone, he effed right off, the screen door banging at that orange moon. And it was so him to do us after dark, but that's my Brian. It's like I married every nasty bit in the 10 o'clock news. Mm -hmm. Good that he called 911, someone should mop. Though now for sure he's barreling out of town, whipping along the ditch with a ball in his crotch. And isn't cereal a weird word? I am, was, cereal as in serially attracted to the Bryans, the ones who chug whiskey like beer, who, who brag, I'll sleep when I'm dead, those guys. So there's me with my loser beacon, Yvonne told me, blonde to blonde, party girl to party girl. She opened and shut her fist in my face, said, that's your forehead, winking at crazies. <laughs> Guess it's true, I could never get past men like him, as if Brian were just the end product, exactly that. But he's the one I chose, the one with the wooden bat, taking down the world that tried to take him down and starting right at home with a big wind-up, a smooth swing, and a loving follow-through. That poem was um, based on a story I heard about five years ago, true story. Um, the sister of a friend of a friend uh, left her husband because he was beating her up and um, she was able to get custody of the two kids. He found out later that she was dating someone else and went to the house with a baseball bat and killed everybody. So when I heard that, at the time that was the grossest thing I'd ever heard and all I could think was, how can I give this woman dignity? So I wrote that poem uh, trying to give her dignity by making it from her uh, spirit. The next poem is um, called The Diver. As if she'll form a circle, she lifts her arms, but stops when her body's a perfect tee at the dock's end. Then her fingers curve upward into the cold October air, and her shoulders pump once to shuck whatever clings, for something always does. Memory, a closet of clothes that hang from bent wire, the clothes you never chose or cannot find. I'm assuming that there are um, athletes in the room or people who have been athletes and remember being athletes. This poem is for you. It's called Homo Ludens. Scrum and huddle and corner kick. Set the pick and pick the corner. Drop pass and behind the back. Go wide, go inside, kick the last quarter. Sit in the slot, block the shot, control the tee. Roll right, drive the baseline, hip check, poke check, finish our checks but still we're losing. 
So we play the body, the trap, the wall. We jab, slash, and elbow the head until we're only down by five. Then I try my kill shot to keep our hopes alive. Um, if you want to induce panic in uh, the person you're driving with, uh, here's what you do. When you're driving the car at 120 kilometers on a highway, you take out a notepad and a pen and you start writing down the name of the road you just passed while you're driving on the steering wheel. Um, so that's what I did for a number of years and I've written road poems. Um, my poor wife Karen was always grabbing a notepad out of me to write down the name of the road but uh, here is uh, here are four poems from the second sequence of road poems in the book. The book opens with a sequence of ten road poems and then there's a second sequence of six. I'll read four. Number one. We're serious here, all furrowed fields and eyebrows. Disquiet? No. A shared coldness. With death our neighbor, accidents our uncles, police warrants our prodigal sons. With homes built of wood we milled and stone we quarried. With guns our birthright. Our first love is a thrown punch. Here, Sorry is never heard. Pity is a prompt for fists. A man who can't lift his weight is gone, driven off. On McGraw Road we live and die. We tell ourselves that in a world ruined by soft hands, fate has kissed us. 2. The swallows swoop at you on Moat Road, fainting at the windshield. So just imagine the happy chatter when you curse or, even better, lose control of the wheel. Distractions include the field of bright yellow, fenced in barbed wire, post to post. Someone's woven a vine between two strands, a trellis, red-flowered, and you've no idea why or what it means, as if everything had a meaning, as if believing that will let you walk on solid ground and have a chance at love, or knowing why you don't. 3. They say the funny people live on seldom seen. Their lives a daily trade in stale jokes and new ways of finding ghosts. The shades of family, both long and lately dead. Clothes comically dated, collars flop, skirts drag. Yet their airy selves, a bomb, a comfort to the living persons there. Unlike the school bus driver's grin. She's new, but her seats are torn, her brakes in bad need. Of repair. And um, the last one is based on uh, a road very close to here, Highway 38. I drove that road on a rainy June day uh, about three years ago. I was alone in the car, so I was able to scribble notes <laughs> freely uh, <laughs> without thinking about killing the person beside me with bad driving. A touch away, the rain's pock, pock, pock resounds in this windowed box, speeding through green, the downpour blurs and deepens. The road climbs, dips, arcs, cupping the world in a curve. The radio sputters another love song. Far above, treetop high, two crows eye the dull shine of moving metal. I slow, click the music off, and slide past a skeletal barn, gray slats on a grass hill. I break in gravel, the rain still drilling the roof like a father telling a son the same thing over and over. 
but the rain weakens. A stretch of mist hangs in a field, cawing stops. A turkey vulture completes a turn and drops from sight, replaced by an image from the last town, from a driveway's lip, a dresser spilling clothes, and at its foot a wooden sign, the letters slashed in red, Take Me. I was in um, a bookstore in St. Anne de Bellevue five or six years ago, and uh, a guy walked in and saw a friend and just started talking to him really loudly. And um, I just, you know, went outside and wrote down the first two or three things and then just kind of made up the rest. But uh, maybe it'll make sense when you hear it. It's called In the Name of the Father. Tim Davis, still alive! You ponytailed old hippie, you're not worms yet. Speaking of, I used the ones I got from watering my yard yesterday in Cotton Ice Pike, just past the Trestle Bridge, you know, where we swam in grade 10 when Donnie did that stupid thing. His poor mother. How's yours doing? I love Betty. She always put an Oreo in my hand when I ran into your kitchen, and even after I did time, my biceps covered in naked women. She'd see me and say, take a cookie, Alfie. My mom on assisted living down by Grimsby. But hey, Timmy, story about your old man. Sam told me, what, a year ago? That guy who did a left on a red? Fucker. I heard he got off too. Let's learn where he lives and make him pay. I know all the tricks. Let's do it. Your dad was good people. You got piggyback rides past my house. You'd wave your cowboy hat with that big sweeping motion, one arm round his neck like reins. But the only problem was, and the thing is, you taught me envy. Remember, when my dad heard I came home in a cop car for stealing hockey cards, then no more Mr. Nice Guy. Nope, it was Tomato Face, bouncing me off the walls, with me pissing myself the whole time, and Mom saying, you're hurting him, Gerald. Anyways, everyone always talks about love and hate. How about fear? But don't worry, Timmy. I won't wuss out on you. I'll do that guy who killed your dad. You watch. I'll make his face look like pizza. Another happy poem. Um, <laughs> for the campers in the room. This is called Camping at Lac La Peche. The stories were pretty good. Told by lit figures in the dark. Anne's friend, who knows the Bordeaux guards by their first names and last week got his face slapped in a bar. Our sister, who shot an air gun at a party and hit his leg. R the same night, watching a buddy bend down and French kiss his German shepherd. M just laughed. M, the pathologist who grades tumors, reviews autopsies. Don, a dragonfly cuts triangles out of air, and men are casting lures and arcs that catch the light, flash the brightness. High child voices bounce across the lake. Rushes flutter, green against blue, and a loon offers a long tremolo. A Cessna drones the bass line for this sudden song. I set down my mug and step to the water, sandals slapping granite. Wind arches the pines, but a triangle of air is still there in my head, a bell that clangs one thought, intensify. Here's a poem for people who like to walk in the woods in the winter. It's called Ice Fires. A lattice of shadows 
lies on the snow road, like the black veins of birch in moonlight, as if a forest is revealing what's unseen, like a secret being told of secret beings. We cross patches of ice, our steps measured, somewhere close, deer huddle in a yard, ears lifting at the scratch of our shuffle. The moon is a fingernail, the hunter's belt slung low. Earlier, we heard ice crack in the bay, the shore a home to jumbles of chunks and slabs, like fire pits of ice. When the snow gods leave the forest and hunch over an ice fire, the blue-white glow of ice wood, its heat will warm those gods who pity us, the proudly intrepid, moving down a frozen road in darkness, far from all the fuss of lights, two more beings who think themselves free. The next poem is um, a prose poem called Worlds. I've spent a lot of time on public transit, probably like many people here. I sit on the back seat of the stop bus and watch your girl's head drift onto the shoulder of a lady with a square bag at her feet. I hear teen boys in sweatpants talk of p pussy and calculus. I always uh, stumble on that word. Uh, I'll start again. I sit on the back seat of the stop bus and watch a girl's head drift onto the shoulder of a lady with a square bag at her feet. I hear teen boys in sweatpants talk of pussy and calculus. I smell the gel coating the head of the guy listening to Beck on his iPod. I feel the pointy elbow of a woman on my left who's got her head bent into the man without qualities. I catch the joy of girls negotiating who'll skip class and who'll take notes. I laugh at the sudden bounce of a ball as a boy dribbles on the floor while staring down an old man's frown. And when the bus jolts forward, I'm surprised by your whisper in my ear of how you've sat placidly on my right and watched me watch others, of how in your homeland no one does that anymore, of how last summer a man with a necklace of children's fingers walked past you. And that same day someone said a Muslim had been crucified on a church door. Your whisper followed by a nudge that makes me turn to confront your face and watch you roll up a blouse sleeve to show me tiny black eyes. The cigarette burns, you say, decided your, this, exile. This next poem is about my uh, Aunt Rosie. Um, all my relatives live in Austria and... Uh, I had an aunt who um, would host me in uh, Austrian fashion. In Austria, people say, Gast ist König, the guest is king. You walk into someone's house and they're immediately plying you with wine, beer, food, and then they watch you eat the food. It's horrible. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this poem is for her, Rosie. I still see a tablecloth checked red and white and how a bottle stood before I sat. With her, my father's sister, I once made my claim to youth. I'd walk across her land, sleeping in fields until Vienna. The skin crinkled round my aunt's eyes. More beer. I never asked a thing. This blonde and gray-eyed woman, her fingers combing a prisoner's hair in a barn, a field, a hidden somewhere in that wartime summer. Her past and his made the world a present. But their son became a summons from the occupier, the black steel helmets. Love was done. 
They say her fingers raked her face, the lines of blood condemning the blue betrayer eyes of her father, who waved his hands and showed his palms. Her cheeks became her speech. She'd never enter his house again. Now her hands unwind the gauze. She guides my touch to her foot, the open sore a nurse will bandage. I look past my aunt to the vase of bluebells, the droop of small helmets. Then I settle my eyes on hers, their gray, her best and last defense. Three more poems. Playing dead among the dead. Our skin is splotched. We hobble down the hall of pink tile, the mall concourse, where lighting turns sallow, the few who aren't. But our walkers help us avoid a fall, and the mall has ramps, railings, benches, all set up to fend off exhaustion, though the air is rank with missed chances, as if chance itself has rotted. And so the throat constricts, the sphincter wants to shut, or has shut, just watch our, just watch our shuffle, table legs move faster, but damn the painters of this place, they chose white to defeat us, its shout of clean, fresh, alive, while these shops cater to decrepits, polyester rules on sales racks, though staring for too long hurts our necks. And hope left years ago. We were sometimes happy. Smiling at a stranger was what we did. And today the stranger's a terrorist and everything's for sale, including us, the sneered at seniors, the ones who fought abroad, who moaned mama in the dark on that rocky beach. After playing dead among the dead till deep night. We know about depth and talking too much. We don't have to. We're your future, our crutches, your memento mori. We of the long or gone memory, each of us a bag of bones some god could use for soup. Still, no need to hate us, our stoop and stupor. We hate it more, what we see when we unbutton, the folds, the purple. And when our clothes hit the floor, they no longer get twisted with someone else's. And even if Paris was yesterday, Paris is forgotten. And here's the pharmacy, the best, the biggest store, with wide aisles, perfume waft, pastel walls and calming music, the smiling staff who always wait for us, and the turnstiles gleam silver, but only turn one way. So I went to uh, Carleton University back in the day, and um, I met a guy named uh, Jeff Mander. Both of us at the time spent a lot of time tugging our forelocks to make them long and cool, like all those British band guys, the guys in Depeche Mode and Echo and the Bunny Man. They all had these hanging forelocks that we so wanted to have, so we kind of pulled down our forelocks. My friends would always make imitations of me pulling down my forelock. Anyway, Jeff Mander only said one thing to me I'll ever remember. Jeff Mander told me he had a cousin in England named Sally. Manning up! like Sally Mander. Her life mangled from day one, but what a move last June in Normandy, book in hand and sunning on someone's mansion roof. She had the radio on loud when her parents found her and shouted, you belly-pierced gutter slut. Well, Sally chose to woman up. After shifting the sneers to a man selling mangoes in the cobbled street, she shoved her folks right off the roof. It's true. That night she got a flight via Paris to Manhattan, became a dresser of mannequins, and loved a man on remand. 
I asked why in the Dockside Mandela Cafe, and Sally blinked, told me the romance felt mandated, as if the fates, her supposed long-haired sisters, decreed that felon fell for felon. While she spoke, the first chords of Sinead's Mandinka came blasting from the speakers. My feet twitching, I leaned forward to gaze into the black eyes of Sally Mander, and when I asked if she had a code, a mantra, she followed. Her eyes slit, her mouth went small, her skin translucent. She slithered off towards the river. A move, a last note I could never manage, strumming on the strings of my mandolin. The last poem is called Charade. What if Caesar wanted to die, the knives easing into flesh, asking to be honeycombed, the blood a spreading salve for the sickness of worry? What if Odysseus hated travel, his fantasy the home fires, the harpist who sang of someone else's fight with siren and giant, with cyclops and Poseidon? What if the crafty man only wanted Penelope's touch and the sight of his son pulling up rocks, planting seed? And what if, in all the years of exile, Ovid was happy in Thomas? Imagine his stance by the Black Sea, and how its lapping waters consoled, told him the endless wrenching of his Rome-sick heart was only natural. Perhaps the sea taught the poet the sublime was not a change of form, but the repetition of. Fired by dreams and whimsy, I want other versions. Juliet bored by Romeo's fawning, Virgil asking Dante to take him by the hand, and, on stage, Othello admitting his adventures to the open-armed, forgiving Desdemona, who cannot stop his suicide. And what if my deepest love, my pact with the evening kiss, the wish to hold and listen, the hand reaching for hand, what if all my loving hours our mere charade, the flapping of my heart's flag, because I fear the quiet. Thank you. Thank you to Jeff and Harold for their readings today and for traveling from the Montreal area to be here. We appreciate it very much. Um, I hope uh, people have a chance to look through their books. We have Jeff's Afterwards and Harold's uh, The Night Chorus on the, the rack. And I uh, noticed Jeff has brought a book, The Shape of Things, which is a chapbook. Uh, looks like uh, translations of Rilke. Is that correct? Um, I'm going to throw some more wood into the wood stove and get this place a little warmer again, but we'd like to thank uh, everyone for coming today. We'd like to thank uh, Lori and uh, Poppy Harrison. Come for, back uh, here to the hospitality corner and have some food. Yeah, please. there's uh, a nice spread back there, so I hope you'll stay and mingle. And uh, Yeah, please do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you just heard a reading at uh, the bookshop in Tamworth. Uh, originally, uh, Jeffrey Cook read earlier, and you just heard Harold Hoffel. And uh, then the closing remarks by the bookshop owner and MC that afternoon, Robert Wright. Tell you what, let's do this, and I'll be right back.
Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the canvassing community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table. Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. I said hip hop. I hit it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie the Tune in to CFRC 101.9 FM every Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for a majestic mix of classic gems and new indie on Spice Machine. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, girl power. Feminism. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, we are located here in Carruthers Hall, uh, Queen's University, Lower Carruthers Hall, I should say, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. And my name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from uh, 4 to 6 p.m. And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. I will mention briefly now, uh, rather than save it till the very end, because I know there are a couple of things... uh, couple of messages that need to air just before we move into the second hour so uh, I'm going to do it uh, it, just to let you know that both hours today's show will be saved to my blog space forward shortly after I get home you can find it at uh, finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com and uh, I want to thank you. I'll do that ahead of time, too. Thank you for tuning in to the first hour today. I hope you can stay tuned for in the, for the second hour when I'll be airing. I believe there are 10 readings in the, from the October 2nd, and the journey continues. Open mic reading in that monthly series. Trying to get caught up. Uh, I think I'm about ready to move out of October events, and I've still got some November events to air. Might even still have an October event, for all I know. So anyway, we're going to try to get caught up here in the first few weeks of 2019. But what I'm going to do until uh, those two messages do need to air just before the top of the hour is um, paging through here. Uh, I've got a list of calls and events, and I'm going to do the events first and then I'll come back to the calls. I won't have quite as much time at the end of the second hour but I'll still have a couple of minutes and maybe I can catch up then. Uh, What I will let you know is there is uh, coming up and you're going to hear a bunch of readings from that series in the second hour. 
Uh, but coming up next Tuesday, January 8th at the Elm Cafe will be the next in the end. The Journey Continues open mic reading uh, again in that monthly series, usually the first Tuesday night of the month. But because the first Tuesday was January 1st, we opted for the second this month. So and uh, doors open at 630. It's a free event. Uh, uh, maximum time at the mic is six minutes. And uh, January 8th, Tuesday, January 8th, runs from 7 to 9.30. I may have said that, maybe not, but now you know. Uh, Doors do open at 6.30. The Elm Cafe is located at 303 Montreal Street. Uh, Also, there's a bus stop uh, just across the street from it as well. So there you know. There you go. Uh, Also, that same night, which is usually also a first Tuesday night of the month series, uh, but in Tweed, uh, they have their first Tuesday, and it's actually called the First Tuesday Muse, but it is going to be happening again this coming Tuesday, January 8th, at the Tweedsmere Tavern in Tweed, and theirs runs from 7 to 9 p.m. The following night, there's a collective zine-making workshop uh, that is hosted by Small Potatoes, uh, which consists of Michelle Burton, uh, Gabriel, uh, can't read my writing here, Shung, uh, Ella Gonzalez, and Karina Magazzini. Uh, th- it's a zine uh, workshop. They consider the theme of public feelings. What I'd suggest as you go, I believe you can find it on the Union Gallery page because that's where it's going to be held. Uh, so if you go to the Facebook event page uh, that uh, they've also set up, I believe if you just type in Collective Zine Making Workshop and Public Feelings, I think that's what they've called this. Uh, I believe you might need to register in advance, but it's all in there. This will be held again the following night, January 9th from 6 to 8.30, so that's a Wednesday night. Uh, there is a maximum, uh, the, the maximum participants is 12, so just so you know. There's a small fee for materials, $10, I believe. Uh, but you can, it says you can register by emailing the, uh, the Union Gallery, so it's ugallery, uh, so all lowercase, U-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y, at queenju.ca. Uh, it will be held again there at the Union Gallery. If you don't know where that is, it's in Stauffer Library. Which is on uh, and on the first floor, Queen's University, right on the corner of University and Union. And uh, let's see, I've got some more. There are going to be some uh, readings uh, coming up at Novel Idea the following week, but I'm going to save those for the second hour because we have a number of uh, calls coming up that are going to expire quickly. Uh, there are two calls expiring. Uh, at some point this month. So uh, if you're on their website, uh, go to the League of Canadian Poets. Uh, they've got one called the Very Small Verse Contest for Micropoems. And uh, if you just go to poets.ca slash very small verse, it should take you there. So I'm guessing www.poets.ca slash very small verse. I'm trying to find their other one. It's a little while. And they have another one for a national broadsheet contest. 
But if you go to the League of Canadian Poets page, what that one is, let's use www again, www.poets.ca slash broadsheet. And I've got a couple of more calls, but I'm out of time this hour. We'll do it in the second. So here we go. I'm going to go ahead and air this, and uh, I'll catch you right back after these two things. And welcome to the second hour of today's show. It's uh, just a bit after 5 o'clock, and you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up in this second hour, uh, from the October open mic reading in the end, the journey continues monthly series. You'll hear readings by Ron Chase, Jerry Jarit, uh, Gwen Whitford, Jenny Marshall, Robert Millard, Gary Raspberry, Sarah Emtish, Meg Freer, Jolene Simcoe, and Nadia Pacey. The usual first announcement, hourly announcement, I guess, is occasionally some uh, poetry, spoken word, or music played on the show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So it's been a long wait for them, so my apologies. It's just been a very busy fall season. I've still got a lot of... uh, recorded material to air so but i figured it's it's been long enough let's go ahead and start into uh and you're going to hear maybe two-thirds of the readings uh that evening but going to move into the october 2nd and the journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series held at the elm cafe up first in it here is ron chase Let's bring up Ron Chase. Purple yo-yo. She was a beautiful purple yo-yo, finally at the end of her string. She enjoyed spinning freely away from the hand that clutched her so tightly that owned her. But it was time to be pulled back into that dark, sweaty palm once again and give up thoughts of freedom and happiness and getting off that string, snapping back without even trying. Set like the sun. He sat alone playing guitar in his underwear as the last hint of this, that the sun ever existed crept below the horizon. The cool breeze dried the sweat from his black t-shirt and the residue of his empire of grit stuck to the bottom of his feet. The wind was too weak to dry his tears. He wished he could set like the sun. Lost love. He ached so deep his heart was afraid to beat. His emptiness echoed against his own silence. His tears dry and gone at the trail of whispers too faint for anyone else to hear. In his clenched fist, his final hope seeped between his fingers and dripped to the cold, hard floor, disappearing between the cracks. Vulture. He circled back once again to where he was before, 
exasperating time had done nothing to show him a better way or place. He'd become the vulture circling his own body, riding an unseen current, waiting for it to die down enough so he could devour himself and leave his bones in peace. Like a dog. He drank one after another, each before the next. His hands and head shook like a dog leaving, leaving a lake with every single swallow. Thinking of her with him, violated. His blurred thoughts matched his vision. His guitar made a sort of peace by keeping his hands from forming fists and making things worse. Three sheets. I stood in your spot, staring. Three sheets flailing against the empty wind. The sky billowed a layer of soft dark clouds, as soft as your hair on my weeping chest, with highlights from a hidden moon lit from above, like you. The fireflies flickered in the long grass, moving slowly and perfectly, like your hips as you hypnotize what is left of me while you walk away. The beauty of that darkness is an absolute soul-wrenching beauty, and I would trade it all for a final glance into your eyes. Hell alone. He would face hell alone for the first time today. He had been there for a long time already, but he had a thin layer of hope as his armor, but she left. If he didn't move. Night laid across his mind, hiding him from morning. The rain sobbed uncontrollably against his black window. He was warm with his blanket pulled up tight to his throat like a soft rope. If he didn't move, the cold air of reality couldn't slip in. He'd be safe. If he didn't move, there was nothing to fear. Nothing bumping, nothing gnashing, nothing waiting, nothing slashing. If he didn't move, he couldn't be crippled by what was hiding in his dark. If he didn't move. And this last one is just a short American sentence poem that I kind of like. He wrote the writing on the wall. He should have taken the time to read it. Thanks. <laughs> Chase, let's give him another hand. Yeah, and you just heard Ron Chase uh, from the October 2nd uh, and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it, here is Jerry Jarit. Up next, we have Jerry Jarit. Did I get it right? Let's bring her up. So it's a story. Can you hear me all right? Is this better? Yes. It's very grown up. <laughs> the transformation. He was shy, thin, sloop-shouldered, with riotous hair. His ability to efface himself with was intriguing. Student at desk disappears, I thought, 
Even our teachers tended to forget him. I wanted to draw him out of the gray where he hid and trace old black lines around him. High school was friends, math, panic, zits, and drawing, always drawing. Others had journals or music or books, but I drew because it was my way of speaking, quietly. I had stacks of sketchbooks under my bed, beside it, on it, but I rarely showed them to anyone. I showed the art teacher when I had to for an assignment. He gave them cursory glances and went back to his flamboyant, look at me, painting semi-nudes at the front of the class. I did the bare minimum of his exploratory assignments. I preferred to watch drama unfold in the cafeteria or the gym bleachers around me and then draw it. And then in grade 12, Joseph came, Hungarian dust on his no-name jeans. Most people barely noticed him. He was like a cat, soft-footed, invisible when needed. I sketched him hunched over writing, Henry Hudson, important because, and fur trade hats. What did he think of us? Did all Hungarians have green eyes? My mother told me that the Nazis had saved Hungary's Jewish community for last, like dessert. Then came the liberation by uh, Russia, and bullet holes still dotted Budapest from the 50s. It was a lot to digest. I thought about it for weeks. Joseph was now learning about the Fraser River. He wore a small cross. Maybe he was Roman Catholic and thought of God with incense and stained glass. My family were Quakers. I thought of God with quiet. I wasn't entirely sure he or she existed, mind you, but when I came to church, a room with saggy sofas at the university, I loved the silence. It was like being a fat snail and settling in mentally to a cozy shell. All I could say was that I felt good after. Joseph was different too, and like having an edge piece of a thousand piece puzzle, I couldn't rest until I found the right spot to place him. It never happened. He kept his head tilted, his face strangely still, until one day when I saw him utterly transformed. I was just looking for some place to draw. Near the music room, I heard a sound like heavy rainfall. I eased the door open. Joseph was alive. His face shone, his back was supple, sinuous, following his hands across the keys. His thick hair swung wildly. His sweater lay crumpled on the floor and his arms rippled. I stopped breathing. I became only sounds, roaring, a roar of rage, such passion. Then the notes hovered, a bird dreaming of flight, her head tucked under a wing. The music trailed up and down. I suddenly remembered opening my first pair of skates, the surprise, the delight, that incredible dream, a rush of me spinning and leaping across the ice. I started to spread out my arms. The music trembled and fluttered. There was silence and I, I was covered in goosebumps. Joseph looked up. His hair and eyes blazed black and green. His face was burgundy. If only I'd had my oil pastels with me. But then, right before me, he began to fade. His hands fell, his shoulders rounded, a lump of hair fell forward. It was terrible to watch. It was a crime. No, don't, I breathed. I mean, it was, I held my palms up. My books crashed to the floor. 
I ignored them, willing him to understand my unsaid words. A curve appeared at the edge of his mouth. Do you dance? I asked wildly. It was like asking T.S. Eliot if he played Scrabble. There's a dance Saturday, I wondered. I swallowed. Then I blurted, if, if you were going, I stopped the please before it slipped out. The transformation began again. I saw his shoulders inch back, his neck elongate, his mouth loosen, such tiny mo movements that others would have missed. He was becoming sharper, more distinct. You want me go? Joseph shook his head. Me to go? Red-faced and mute, I nodded. I could sketch his hair with charcoal, using the edge. In his hands, they were long-fingered and strong. You are sure? Me? I blushed more deeply. You, Joseph, I added, just to be clear. A tentative smile began at the corners of his mouth. His green eyes began to light. Yes. Thank you, Anne. Great. I turned and slipped outside before I spontaneously combusted. He knew my name. <laughs> That was Jerry Jarit. Let's give her another hand. And again, that was Jerry Jarit uh, from the October 2nd and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next from it, here is Gwen Whitford. Up next, Gwen Whitford. Let's bring her up. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Good evening, everyone. I wrote two poems with actually a high school audience in mind. Any on Fry in the Crowd? Um, I do believe that the themes are ageless, and perhaps you could let me know afterwards. The fall of summer. Fluffed up ducks bathe in still morning light. Sun sparkles shimmer on stagnant river scum. Dappled green leaves show off rosy red apples, and lush willows bow to watery reflections. Squirrels scurry about at dizzying speeds with nuggets of nourishment clutched in their cheeks. Blue jays squawk and fackies honk, one to stay and the other soon gone. Ragweed and goldenrod aggravate and irritate while lively children skip down the street. Let's go to the park. There's still time to play. Our homework can wait. It's such a warm day. Slanted afternoon light softens the glare as longer shadows quickly fade, reminding, despite wishes to the contrary, that the fall of summer is well underway. Taking a leap. It's often hard to know the best way to go, moving forward with no holding back, trying to spark joy without tears of regret, making room for possibilities, saying goodbye to what belongs no more, trusting that there is merit in taking a leap of faith and confronting the unknown. It's out there patiently waiting, no matter which path we'll be taking. Thank you. 
Gwen Whitford, let's give her another hand. And that was Gwen Whitford from the October second and the journey. October twenty second and the journey continues. Open mic reading. Stumbled there. Up next in it here is Jenny Marshall. Up next, Jenny Marshall. Let's bring her up. Hi there. I'm breaking from tradition and actually reading more than one poem. <laughs> took about a year to do that. <laughs> My first poem is called Depression. <clears throat> Buried alive. Weepy abyss. Smoldering judgment. Inert corpse. And on occasion, glimmering familiarity. Ease of existence. Normality, joie de vivre, only to decline, relapse, shut down, tread water. Help, throw me a line, pull me ashore, glue me together. I want, I need to become a sturdy mosaic of, in, of independence. Okay, this one's called Epiphany. Realization. You don't get me, and I don't get you. Two forks in the road, two sides of a philosophical fence, adjacent then circles with no intersection. But no regrets. We both have people, just different people. I'm okay, you're okay, because there is a group for everyone. So we beg to differ. Amen. The last poem is called The Man on the Street. There's actually someone on the street that this poem is for, and some people might actually recognize who I'm talking about. The man of the street sports bright blue eyes housed in a furrowed face. The man of the street leans on a wall smoking a stogie with casual grace. The man of the street extends his hat. Wealth distribution is where he's at. The man of the street twinkles his eyes. I twinkle back. We're saying goodbye. Where does he go? Where does he stay? The man on the street is drifting away. Jenny Marshall, let's give her another hand. And that was Jenny Marshall at the October 2nd, and the journey continues. Open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it, here is Robert Millard. Up next, Robert Millard. Let's bring him out. So I've got uh, several short poems tonight. Uh, recently I've been doing a lot of writing where, I guess you could call it thematic perception poetry, where I just look at an image before me and try to write just, just let it flow out. 
So some of these are written that way, others are not. Hopefully they'll all carry. Thanks. Art is alchemy and allegory, rabbits pulled from empty hats, thoughts, emotions, dreams reflected, mirrors held up to perceptions, manifest fantasy, wraiths and hungry ghosts exposed, pain laid bare, freshly flayed ragged flesh draped like lace on polished bone, outward flowing streams of light, rapids rushing to the falls, and unicorns. Everybody's talking. Everybody's talking since you rolled back into town. Everybody's laughing, rolling reefers, getting high. They're drinking and they're dancing. The place is really rocking. It's a crazy celebration to welcome him back home. But not one of them has looked him in the eye. No right words. Writing words while writing wrongs. Singing songs while ships are sinking. Foundering in a teary sea. Swimming hard but going under, breathing in the salty water. No rescue crew on the horizon. No right words. No perfect verses. Sheila Nagig. Sheila Nagig over her doorway. Herbs fill her garden. Dragon heart woman down in the oak grove communing with nature electric potential dome of protection. Elements bend to the force of her will. Her stony appearance disguises the river of positive energy, a gift from the goddess which flows like pure silver poured from the crucible. Dancing spider, future hunger. Dancing spider, tightrope walker, building nets to catch the flying, sticky silk to shroud the fallen, memories of leaner times and disappointed expectations, fears of sorrowful tomorrows feed the need to fill the larder, precious blessings, tasty morsels, safely cached for future hunger. There is no spoon. There is no reason, there are no rules. There is no road so long and twisted with curves so tight they can't be straightened or hills so high they can't be flattened. There are no toll gates barring entry, no trolls hiding under bridges. You'll need no passport for this journey. There's nothing to prevent you traveling different paths, exploring ways to bend or break or blend perceptions. There are no barriers, there are no limits. Once you know, there is no spoon. <coughs> Autumn leaves. Fallen leaves upon the ground. Life and death, the wheel goes round. The harvest moon, an amber disc. The frosty night, a gentle tap. Reminding those who might forget, the winter winds will soon arrive. To feed the earth, the old must die. The wheel will turn and once again the new will feast upon the old. Buds will bloom, 
grass will grow, and some small part of you and I will still remain to live and die, and live and die again. Finally, free your mind. See no, hear no, speak no reason why our eyes should limit vision. Free your mind and you may see kaleidoscopic leaf monks praying, meditating, breathing deeply. Ancient faces, fully painted, trusted shamans by the fire, chanting ageless healing mantras, sacred feathers, sticks and bones, imbued with untold magic powers. Leave no leaf unturned, unnoticed. Parrots perched on flowered branches, white doves circling and landing, lacy shapes of insects dancing. Mirrored patterns, ordered chaos, nature's paint laid on the canvas, scraps of fabric stitched together, crazy quilt sewn by a master. Thank you. Robert Millard, let's give him another hand. And that was Robert Millard from the October 2nd uh, and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Up next in it, here is Gary Raspberry. Up next, Gary Raspberry, let's bring him up. Oh, I should mention too, Gary has a music night here every, the last Thursday night of every month, so check it out. Thanks, Chris. Let's give him a hand since I can't make it really well. Thank you, Bruce. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I believe that uh, keeping lists can be a form of poetry, and I want to read you a, a Vancouver poem. This poem is called Not Really a List. It's subtitled Observations from a Large Library Window that Looks Out from the Emily Carr College of Art and Design on Granville Island. A gray man in wool walks by a white woman with green hair. The purple wing of a pigeon catches tiny pieces of sunlight. Women, more beautiful than my imagination, put on one-act plays with jangly earrings. A line of black shade takes a steel-plated wall hostage. I wonder how they got these mountains so close to the city. What do these city dwellers carry in their backpacks? Everyone wants a high-windowed studio of their own. Maybe I'll bike Europe this spring. The time is right to take up smoking. Ambiguity is not something to be eliminated. No one looks at anyone else, but we all know everything about each other. Bodies? So many fine layers of fabric hiding this one and that. I suppose drinking red wine and making love last through afternoons wouldn't be bad either. Everybody is bent over a canvas or a wheel or a word. A middle-aged man with pale brown skin wheels by with a baby. Someone else is thinking of jumping off the bridge or becoming a poet. Linguistics cannot penetrate the heart of language. It's all maintenance after 40. Out the window, more leather. The four girls light cigarettes and laugh. One thing leads to another. How many piercings are possible? 
I stop using discretion. A four-year-old girl dances the purple flower dance. I feel naked without a portfolio. I hope I never stop seeing. A woman with a free Tibet tattoo eats Thai noodles with a plastic fork. Give me one good reason to stop. And this is an Alberta poem. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, all the folks in this room who are poets uh, either are reticent to call themselves po po poets or have uh, moments of uh, feeling that they're an imposter. I got on an airplane once uh, and I ended up sitting beside a poet. Her name is Sherry D. Wilson. Is anyone familiar with her work? She's a performance poet and she lives in Alberta. And at the time, this was several years ago, uh, she's known for really edgy, out there, experimental poetry and very performative. And I ended up sitting beside Sherry D. Wilson on the plane and I felt, uh, well, I felt mortal and I felt like an imposter as a poet. It's called Poets on a Plane. For Sherry D. I met a poet on a plane, our conversation high above the clouds. A witty flight attendant, she is also the captain, in charge, everything under control. Unrehearsed announcements she makes to a captive audience who wonder but don't doubt the authenticity of voice, the veracity of spoken word, the secrets of business class. A nervous co-pilot, I'm trying to remember how to fly without the manual. All the gauges look the same. I pass out snacks, search for words that might rhyme with altimeter, have time to change into a blue leisure suit. Poetry has broken out at the back of the plane, and already we're collecting headsets and asking people to put return their chairs and tables to upright positions. Later, waiting for our luggage, the planet tilts the night sideways. I admit I'm an accountant. A crescent moon catches on the edge of the conveyor belt. All my poems come out in one piece, but badly damaged. One hand hails her a cab, the other too heavy to wave goodbye. So I'm going to finish with a, a short piece. This is from a collection of mine called Some Days Just Noticing. I wrote a, a poem a year, a poem a day for a year, and they're all dated entries. So often when I read, uh, I'll just read today's entry. So this one is uh, called uh, October 2nd. It's also subtitled uh, Fairy Lights. Each day now, without fail, night drops in earlier and earlier. That is to say, each day brings less and less of itself and more and more of night. This awareness, along with the weight the growing darkness brings, is somehow made more bearable by the neighbors along my street who have hung sparkle lights on their front porches. The darkened street is shiny wet and autumnal. The black pavement shivery with colored lights. More and more of us are pulling our colors up, heads down, seeing less and less. But the blinking fairy lights guide us home through the dark, earlier and earlier, later and later, without fail. Thank you.
That was Gary Raspberry. Let's give him another. And that was Gary Raspberry from the October 2nd and the Journey Continues uh, monthly open mic reading and uh, held at the Elm Cafe. Uh, just quick mention, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are streaming live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Coming up next, from that same event that evening, here is Sarah Emtish. Balderdash. It's, uh, I think I'm still tweaking it a bit, but I think maybe it helps me to do that to like get some audience reaction. And I, I still like it. Um, or I like it already. Uh, so, one thing I guess I wanted to explain the phrase boulder, boulder, because you can't see it written, is actually two different kinds of boulder. The first is in more bold, and the second is in big hunk of rock. Uh, and not that it makes too much difference, it's kind of a silly poem anyway. Uh, but here we go. Balderdash. On the brackish brink of Balderdash, in the bolder, bolder fields, we follow the feathers to find a flash of older, golder yields. And we hear the call, and we fall, and we crawl, and we stumble and rise and realize we're on the hunt and on the loose and on the trail of a wild goose. A defiant, giant, wild goose. The grass is long, and the scent is strong, and it carries us on and on and on, and under and over and further and on. We have clever, cunning, drumming drums, seismic, rhythmic, tuneful tongues, and heart-like beating conundrums come from our humming, hawing, bagpipe lungs that go on and on and on. On the brackish brink of balderdash, in the boulder, boulder fields, the avalanche is at our back, and the storm is at our heels. And here on the brink of Balderdash, with eggshells for our shields, the mountains continue to crack and crash into boulders on the fields. But the grass is long, and the scent is strong, and it carries us on, and on, and on, and under, and over, and further, and on, and on, and on, and on. Um, And this is called Blue Dally. On a Tuesday, today's a Tuesday. It was perfect. I didn't realize that. Sorry. <laughs> On a Tuesday, a true day, a bright day in June, my kindred and I tuned our harps to a loon on a long dally daydream of blue. And we sailed, sailed away in a pistachio shell till we came to a calm and we paused for a spell on a long dally daydream of blue. And we set up our camp on this silver sand shore and we'll sing on this spot till we travel once more on a long dally daydream of blue. And the last poem is called Losing. It's okay to lose. You were never the sum of the things you clung to. You are you. And so much, much more than the stuff you fought for. You do not need to conquer. Be conquered instead by the love that he bled, by the life he was willing to lose. Thank 
with Sarah M. Tosh. Let's go, I can give her another hand. And you just heard Sarah Emtish reading in the uh, October 2nd uh, reading of In the End, The Journey Continues Open, Mike uh, series. Again, held at the Elm Cafe. Up next in it, here is Meg Freer. Up next, Meg Freer. Let's bring her up. My first two poems are based on an American nurse's experience during World War I, as detailed in her writings from 1919, in which she says of the civilian war hospitals at the time, never in the history of wars has such a thing been done. So this first poem is called Civilian War Hospital in the Abstract. We bring the wounded on stretchers, out of danger to the first zone, where they lie alone until we have time to move only those still alive to the second zone, barracks, hospital, museum, or cathedral. We, the medical corps, always prepared to pack up as the battle hub shifts, follow after, arrive intact, all expenses paid by the government, salaries flowing smooth as velvet through sorrow and loss, an inspiring idea of efficiency, gloriously American. This is called Red Cross Cutting Rooms. Upstairs, we trace patterns on the top surface, slice through wads of cloth 175 folds thick, more easily than through butter. The round blades electric hum, a prelude for warm garments sewn to console soldiers overseas who have not yet suffered. Downstairs, we cut bandages and wind them into rolls, bandages for wounds deep as those in hearts back home. Then I'll just read the last two poems are, are repeats of ones I read at 100,000 Poets for Change. This is called The Turtle's Shell. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch grows three times the size of France, a giant gestating map of our negligence, a hypothetical new country, the trash aisles, complete with flag and stamps, images on the proposed currency, the debris, trace the muscles of ocean life, a gull with a six-pack ring around its neck cries in agony on the 100-degree bill, Nervous arms of an octopus clutch bottles and tubes. Seals, sea turtles, and whales fight with plastic hangers and jugs for space. On the other side of the world, a child looks at a newborn baby's pinky toe, exclaims, it's small as a pickle seed, and laughter covers pressing thoughts of end times, releases ripples of hope that ocean travelers will find not plastic, but moss on a turtle's shell. And this last poem I wrote in advance of the observation of World Toilet Day on November 19th. And that's not actually supposed to be funny. Uh, it's a serious problem that much of the world does not have access to toilets. This is called Airport Has No Drinking Fountains. The flower garden around the corner 
grows ever larger, requires ever more water, and the owner worries that its vastness maps her level of stress. But Zippy, the tulip tree, planted in the park, named by the final class of seven children at the demolished neighborhood school, thrives without being watered and may show off its first flowers next spring. Wild parsnip's cool green disguises its sickening burn as it grows rampant along roads and trails, fills abandoned lots. The dog howls of sirens increase day and night, and I try not to worry about whoever needs help at 3 a.m. How can I complain that the airport in Warsaw has no drinking fountains? Why do I run water without thought when much of the world walks hours for a bucket full of water to wash hands or clothes, and more people have a mobile phone than a toilet? From space, astronauts watch our giant green teardrop drown in the darkness between stars while the sun rises and sets on Pluto in shades of blue, and we imperfect dreamers can only hope that rain stores memories. Thank you. Fellas, uh, make free or let's give her another hand. And that was Meg Freer from the October 2nd and the Journey Continues open mic reading again held at the Elm Cafe. Up next in it, here is Jolene Simcoe. Up next, Jolene Simcoe. Let's bring her up. Hi, everyone. I haven't read since the Artel days. Glad. Due to a conversation yesterday, I realized I had, um, I write about a lot of things. And I've never titled a series, but today has a theme. The theme is thinly veiled references to inconvenient feelings. I'll read them in chronological order. 2004, Euphoria Leaks. I know what you want. I know where this leads. The fox lately trotted where plots dare to breathe. Thoughts on our minds, these clots of our kind, so lacking in which we were fasting. I don't see the point to be nimbly harsh where it's time and hope that brings us closer to the hour I crave for the madness to increase to a of bliss we deserve. After of a long haul of deceitful desserts, they bypass our guts to a refreshing start of fungus joy rots just because it's fun and special. This box that I wrought, it hangs lightly, spot on, to the drama so craved to be our happy slave to each other's havens mistaken for lungs, better managed, less ravaged than ravens in waiting. Slight purr to the words we had taken for curds of cheese, never sworn or less baked, so teased to soon reach these euphoria leaks. I feel when a heart tries to speak, but then closes. It's noticed and noted pending promotion. At least I have spoken myself.
Ryan Simcoe. Let's give another hand. And that was Jolene Simcoe from the October 2nd and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series again at the Yom Cafe. And up next in it, and will be the last poet from that evening you'll hear this afternoon, but here is Nadia Pacey. Up next, Nadia Pacey, let's bring her up. I thought my silence said everything that it needed to say. Each pause is another painting, and each eye, each at right and left, here's another note that I had no intent to play. I think you are like baking soda to my soul in a vinegar bath. I didn't know you would consume me, but on instinct, on principle, you did. You do and will again if I don't go. Even if I could remember your name, I might not say it. Even in the efforts of love, I wouldn't move. When I was young, my heart would never hesitate. My many voices attached themselves to those whose essence brought my soul to light, to life, to art. I'll steal my heart away because it always leaves with you. A dandelion seed turning up and floating elsewhere. A dream that a computer has and numbers that move not in but by infinity. If every day I think of you just once, I've seen Medusa at the bone. No image was more beautiful than that which turned me thus to stone. I am not frustrated because I'm dumb. I'm frustrated because I'm uneducated. I'm frustrated because your universal language is teachable to confident children. And I didn't find that until I was confident enough to say, I don't need to learn this. I am smart in other ways. My other ways do not have the words I need now. I must embrace with confidence the solitude that isn't isolation, the peace that is the warring questions, and ask these questions out loud to professionals and experts when I feel like a total fucking idiot, especially when I feel like a total fucking idiot, if I'm going to help describe the beginning. Nadia Pacey, let's give her another hand. And that was Nadia Pacey from the October 2nd and the Journey continues open mic reading in that monthly series at the Elm Cafe. And as mentioned at the top of the show, I believe, I do have a few minutes here again to share announcements, just a few it looks like, Uh, and uh, 
Before I do that, though, uh, I want to thank you for tuning in today. Uh, you have uh, been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And we do stream online at www.cfrc.ca. And just want to remind you as well that each hour of every show each week uh, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. We'll remain there for four years. So uh, I've got uh, just a couple of minutes, really. Let's go ahead and move back into the event side of the list. And we're going to jump into uh, the week that has Wednesday 16th in it, so like the week after next. On the third Wednesday of each month, uh, there is a poetry prose sharing group that's facilitated by Ann Graham and held at the Kingston Unitarian Fellowship Hall from 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, They describe the series as quite laid back and usually fun. Uh, There's a discussion uh, about reading, and people can share or not share. There's also a prompt of the day uh, for a a writing session in it as well. So Wednesday, January 16th, 2 to 4 p.m., Kingston Unitarian Fellowship, Sidor, it says, and uh, 206 Concession Street. And uh, I believe that same evening at uh, Union Gallery, uh, again, it's uh, tone deaf. And uh, the Union Gallery is celebrating arts one millionth and 56th, it looks like, birthday. So uh, I'll go into more detail in this, but that is happening uh, January 16th. I didn't write the time down here, but it seems to me like it starts something like 6 o'clock. Anyway, I'll have that for you next Friday. Also that evening then, uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., there is a book launch at Novel Idea Bookstore, the first of theirs this year. Manisha Sinha, I believe, will be launching and reading from their new book, A Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Again, that's at the Novel Idea Bookstore from on January 16th, Wednesday, January 16th, begins at 7 p.m. If you don't know where Novel Idea Bookstore is, I can just say you should. And But it is at the corner of uh, Baggett and Princess. And uh, do I have time? I don't think I do. So anyway, I'm just going to stop there. But again, that's like a week and a half. We're moving into a week and a half, almost two weeks out uh, for these. So I will be sure to announce them next week. What I hope that you'll do is that uh, immediately following a few of these recorded announcements that I've held off airing this hour so we could just buckle our way through uh, the October 2nd reading. Now we'll try to finish those up, I believe, next week. And just discovered I have a September event even, oh my God, that I haven't, I didn't realize I hadn't aired yet. So I will definitely air that next week. And I feel sorry. My apologies to all the people that were part of a uh, an event called Unravel. Anyway, please stay tuned to for two hours of East Coast Music, Right at the top of the air, following these announcements, Rob Carnell's Saltwater Music. I hope you have a great weekend, great week ahead, and I will catch you here next week.
Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. Have a good one. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.